Welcome to the American College of Clinical Pharmacies podcast. I'm Emma Webb, Senior Project Manager of Education. And I'm Dan Astrope, Director of Clinical Practice Advancement. This will be the first of what we hope will be many podcast episodes. ACCP's podcast will feature a variety of different topics from interviews with people who are influencing the direction of clinical pharmacy to new research and clinical topics. Yeah, and this first episode today features an interview with Hala Dura. So we're really fortunate to have hers, and then you'll hear why now. Hala Dura is a patient and family-centered care advocate, speaker, and consultant. Her professional background includes event and meeting management, nonprofit work, and development. Her passion for a lot of this work stems from experiences that she has had as a mother of a chronically ill child who has undergone two liver transplants and a bone marrow transplant. I always find that amazing. She's also been an invited speaker for organizations such as the National Academy of Medicine, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Patient Center Primary Care Collaborative, the Institute of for Patient Family Center Care, and a ton of different state healthcare organizations, as well as being a regular invitee to a whole bunch of different national meetings and forums. So we're really excited and lucky to have her here with us. Yes, and we'll get to hear a lot of her perspective on on healthcare and, and patient and family centered care today. Um, she recently addressed our membership at our annual meeting in Hollywood, Florida. And so, again, um, welcome to Hala. And she serves as a consultant on a number of national projects focusing on uh, patient and family engagement and interprofessional education and, and quality and, and patient safety. So, again, welcome to her, and, and we're glad to have her here today. And now for our super cheesy theme music. Today we have with us Hala Dura, who is a patient and family-centered uh, patient and family-centered advocate and uh, consultant, and, and she's here with us at our annual meeting in Hollywood, Florida. And today she addressed our membership as a, as one of the keynote speakers, and and she's agreed to share a little bit more with us here as part of our podcast. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So we were just wondering kind of how you even got into this particular area. Um, I believe that your background is um, not necessarily related to healthcare. Yes. So yes, my academic and professional backgrounds are not in healthcare. However, I came to this work being the parent of a chronically ill child and experiencing the system in, in various forms. and. Eventually, that led me to um, about four or five years ago, I was asked to volunteer at a local hospital. They were building a hospitality house for families that were coming from long distances to receive care. And I had experience living in these types of homes over the course of my daughter's care over the years. So they thought I'd be a perfect fit for this particular committee. Uh, The house, though, was already built. However, I was able to kind of share just some of my experience living in these types of um, houses and what families really would need and and expect uh, while they stay in these types of facilities. And from there, I kind of springboarded into a variety of different leadership positions, um, joining their Patient Family Advisory Council and eventually helping co-found their Women and Children's Patient Family Advisory Council. And so that's really where my patient family-centered care 
journey experience began within that local hospital. And then from there, I've, I've had the great opportunity to serve on a number of national committees and, and consulting projects. But let's rewind a bit. Explain, explain to our listeners why you had the experience of, of having stayed in those, um, those types of houses. Sure. So um, I have four children. My oldest daughter, Aya, is a two-time liver transplant and a bone marrow transplant recipient. She was born with a rare and incurable liver disease, biliary atresia, and um, eventually required a liver transplant for that. And when she had that liver transplant, unfortunately it failed, and she required another liver transplant a couple days later. And then if you Fast forward a couple years after that, unfortunately, she developed lymphoma and had to go through chemotherapy, eventually leading to a bone marrow transplant. So as you can imagine, over the course of the year, she's had quite a number of inpatient hospital stays. And I do have other children, so it was really a blessing to be able to stay at a facility across the street from the hospital where I could see her siblings and be with them, but also be able to just walk across the street um, and be with her. And we were able to also have a lot of family support uh, during those times. And they would also have the ability to stay in those type of um, facilities so that we could really be accessible to our children, our um, family members, as well as Aya, who was in, in the hospital. And we really, really believe that uh, those types of facilities are a great benefit to patients and families. So I'm assuming that that experience kind of informed everything about what you advocate for because you've had firsthand experience going through that process. Yeah, so my work now is, is, is really about how can I advocate for patients and families to be part of the care team and obviously my own personal experience with my daughter and other family members, because we've all had other family members as well of our, as ourselves that have been patients, has influenced and helped guided me in helping to really support the system in this concept of team-based care and patient-family-centered care, patient-family engagement. So it's been a real, um, I believe, a great and blessing and an opportunity for me to share our journey with the hopes that we could really all partner with one another. So, so tell us a little bit about that journey and, and some of the things that you encountered that really shape um, your views and how uh, we as healthcare providers should be engaging with patients and families. I think that at its core, healthcare is about compassion. And somewhere along the way, sometimes that gets lost in translation. And so, I believe, you know, that everyone who's part of the care team really does want to help one another mm -hmm. and really does want to work with one another and form that relationship and show that compassion and that trust. However, with all the different pressures on the system or all the different pressures that life in general puts on us, sometimes it's hard to be able to communicate with one another and really understand where the other one is coming from or understand their particular experience. And even within the care team, like my daughter, for instance, who has multiple conditions, care team members communicating with one another seems to be a challenge. So a lot of times I've had to serve as that bridge. And there are days where you're, you really feel like I need the support. 
I can't just manage this on my own. And I need everyone to be talking with one another as well as talking with me. I can't always serve as that voice. So that really has been the impetus for me to really look at the team, really look at how can we work with one another, how can we partner with one another to improve the experience for everyone. I don't think patient family-centered care means just about patients and families. I think it means all of us. How do we improve the experience for all of, all of the care team members? How do we show compassion to everyone on the team? And so I hope with the work I do and, and being able to share our journey and our story that everyone will see that at the end of the day, we all do want to help one another. And if we just start that conversation and no, understand that we can partner with one another, we can only improve healthcare. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's in the evolving landscape of healthcare and, and all of the things that are changing. Um, it's really easy to keep your head down and think about quality metrics and outcomes and, and IT infrastructure and, and things like that. And, and so your, your perspective on taking a time out to look up, connect with the patient, and, and focus on the communication and the relationship is, is really key. I get that. Um, is that the thing that you found most frustrating, like through the process, was the lack of communication between different care providers? Or was there, I mean, I'm sure that there are many things that were frustrating. Right. I think that probably is one of the top on my list is just the lack of communication between each other. Um, sometimes you, you also run into the lack of clinicians really understanding that patients and families want to be part of the team and want to be engaged members and also want to be empowered to make decisions with the team. Mm -hmm. And I think I've encountered that over the years a number of times where you do have clinicians who assume, well, we know what's best. This is how we should do it. That's the end. Mm -hmm. And that's not the end. We can talk about it with one another. I obviously value the clinician's expertise, their experience, their knowledge. However, I also have a expertise and knowledge of my own child that I can offer and share with them. And imagine how we can improve the experience and outcomes when we're actually partnering and talking with one another. I actually think that's really interesting. I've just been reading the book, this book, and I can't remember um, the author's name, but it's called Being Mortal, and mm -hmm. it really focuses actually on the on hospice and the dying process, and about how patients and families really need to be part of the conversation. But it seems, and I say this as as the non pharmacist on staff, um, that it seems a lot of the conversation that we have seems to be about how we talk to patients about adherence or how we talk to patients about specific things rather than talking with patients. Is that something that you found in your experience that you found that clinicians were talking to you, not necessarily with you? Yes, yes, okay. I think. And I also will highlight my daughter being a pediatric patient mm -hmm recently shared her own experience at a, a national conference. And she, the biggest thing she said is that no one was talking to her. You know, people were looking at mom, people were looking at dad, they were talking to mom, they were talking to dad, but they weren't acknowledging that she was there. 
and that she also had her own preferences mm -hmm. and she also wanted to be engaged in in the process of communicating and partnership and so I think it's very important to highlight that that person in the bed Mm -hmm. also has to be recognized as someone who is part of the care team and also acknowledging that they also have their own preferences and want to be engaged. And, and I think sometimes in the pediatric setting, there's such a focus on, you know, mom and dad or whomever the caregivers may be, but not necessarily the child. And so I think we also have to keep that in mind as well, that um, we have to engage everyone in the room not just the person who may speak up or or be the older person <laughs> in the room or the more knowledgeable person but everyone in that room is is important well along those same lines i mean a lot our listeners um i'm sure don't realize your husband is a physician how has that also played into um the communication and, and the experience that you've that you've gone through it's very interesting. My husband is an adult hospitalist, so he only sees patients in the hospital setting. And once care team members know that he's a physician, which by the way, he does not tell them because he has this um, notion that he doesn't want to make them nervous or seem to be stepping on anyone's toes. And so he doesn't really share that he is a physician when they first meet him. However, once he starts speaking, <laughs> it's quite obvious that he is. <laughs> right. And so they will remark to him, oh, are you a physician? Well, yes, I am. As soon as he says that, they will turn to him and start speaking in what I like to call, you know, medicalese, medical jargon. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, I'm not part of that conversation. And I've even had moments where, it, before even a lot of institutions have adopted bedside shift report or bedside rounding, where we were in an ICU, and I will never forget this moment, we were in the ICU, and the physicians knew that my husband was a physician, and they looked at him, and they waved him to come out in the hallway, and they let him join rounds with them but they didn't ask me to come. Hmm. And that to me was a very hurtful moment because I felt like I was completely excluded because I was not a physician. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was this always this assumption, you know, oh, well, he'll run her medications and he will, you know, be able to manage. Whereas over the years, I've been the primary caretaker and I can remember her last set of labs her last procedure her last visit you know I make all her appointments when she came home with a Hickman which she had for almost a year and a half I was the one running those medications I was the one changing the dressings. so there are times where I have experienced a bit of frustration because there was an assumption of okay well we don't really have to tell them much because her husband's a physician or she may even be discharged a little early because there's assumption that, oh, but her dad's a physician, so if anything, you know, kind of happens, he can take care of it. So even though he's not, um, like, he doesn't work with pediatric patients, which is a completely different population exactly. than adults. Um, and so I'm assuming that there's also the assumption that, that he would do all the medical translations so that they would use, as you said, medical ease. And so things that maybe you didn't necessarily understand because 
or that maybe you did understand because once you get to a certain point, you know exactly what her labs are going to look like and what is good and what is not great. And right, yeah. right, right. Okay. So it, and to also to add to that, you know, obviously there's times in this journey that are very painful. Mm-hmm. And I, my heart goes out to my husband a lot more sometimes than even to myself because I know that he understands mm-hmm. a lot more deeper into the, the disease process and the condition. And I sometimes look at him and I wonder how does he go back the next morning and see patients who are adults mm-hmm. who may be experiencing some of the things our daughter may experience at some point. And, and that bringing that home and, and going from home to the hospital and, and kind of seeing that to me, mm-hmm. I would think is, is a very difficult thing. And he handles it so beautifully with humility and, and very humble. And I think that's even improved his own practice. He's always been an advocate of being engaged with patients and families. But I'm sure with his personal experience at home, he has seen it through a different lens. And I think a lot of times when people have to go through these types of experiences, they realize, oh, wait a minute, we're not doing the things we should do. We're, we're not having that conversation. We're not partnering. And I know it's opened his eyes in a lot of different ways um, to what engagement truly means and what listening means and what compassion means. And and sitting down in that chair and, and holding someone's hand when you're giving them news that will completely change their life. So um, I'm very appreciative of, of also understanding his perspective as a clinician as well, because there are a lot of pressures on frontline staff and on the system that we as patients and families don't necessarily know. And respecting that, I know everyone wants to do the right thing. We're just all trying to figure it out. Right. Did you find the, and maybe you can't answer this on behalf of your husband, um, did you find that the care team tended to treat him differently or more dispassionately because he was a medical professional himself, that they would kind of run through her labs and, and maybe not go through the steps that they would go through with another patient family member? Yes, absolutely. And that's when I'd have to step in and say, I'm here too. I'm her mom. Mm-hmm. These are the things I do. These are the things I know. And I need, now need you to speak in a way that I can understand. Mm. And so, yes, there, definitely there is a shift as soon as they do know he's a physician <laughs> in the way they're speaking. And I have to step in and say, stop, please. I need to understand what you're saying because I'm the one who has to go home mm-hmm. and follow up. And so if I don't understand it or if my daughter doesn't understand it, then, y- you know, you're doing a disservice to us um, as a family. So I've had to speak up a number of times um, about that. And um, I think, you know, people under I think at the end of the day, when I speak up, people get it mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you have to be able to um, kind of turn off that physician button for a little bit and understand <laughs> you're still with a family and, and you have to be able to have a conversation that everyone can understand. One of the other um, side pieces of your story um, that our listeners won't be able to obviously see, um, as this is all audio, um, is that you 
wear a hijab. Um, and so I was wondering if there are any unique situations that occurred um, because of that. Um, usually we think of medical professionals and clinicians as being um, highly educated and hopefully above some of those things, but um, we also talk a lot about cultural communication um, with our members, and I know that a lot of them are really interested in that. So I have had some experiences with some cultural communication barriers because I wear hijab as an American Muslim woman. I remember a particular experience where we were being taken from the oncology clinic down to the emergency room because my daughter had spiked a fever during, the during a blood transfusion. So the protocol was they had to go to the ER and then be admitted. And so we go, and by the way, just to kind of give the setting of this, we had, we had been in the oncology clinic since 8.30 that morning. We were being taken down at about 5 p.m. that evening to go to the ER, which I already was not very happy about because I did not want her to catch something while we were waiting in the ER to be admitted, and we knew we would have to be admitted. So we went downstairs and, and already flustered, very tired. And as soon as we walk into the ER, they said, you know, they'll be having someone waiting for you when you get there and they know you're coming. We walk down, we get to the ER. As soon as the nurse sees me, she says, oh, do you need an interpreter? Before I even opened my mouth. Oh, wow. And here I am, exhausted, emotionally, physically. I have my child who is feeling awful. Mm -hmm. And I was already upset that we had to go to an environment where she could catch something and she had a very low white blood cell count. So I look at her a little puzzled <laughs> and then I say, no, I do not need an interpreter. <laughs> Then she takes us back to the room, and I said, you know, I'm not a person who's going to be confrontational. I believe you have to treat everyone with respect and dignity. And so I, I told the nurse, I said, listen, I think I need to share something with you because you will encounter others who look like me here. This is a very diverse academic medical center. I won't be the first nor the last patient you see that wears hijab. And I said, and hijab is the covering that Muslim women wear. I said, don't assume that just because I wear this, I cannot speak English. I said, I was born in Michigan, raised in Maryland. Obviously, I can speak English. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to understand there are many women who wear the hijab who are American Muslims who can speak English, obviously, fluently, either being born here or raised here or what have you. So... Don't ever make an assumption based on the way a person looks. I said, obviously, when you get into the room and if you s experience that there may be a language barrier, that's when you engage the interpreters to come in and assist. But don't make that assumption based on the way someone looks because it's, unfortunately, it's very offensive. And she kind of looked a little upset and I said I'm not trying to criticize you I'm really just trying to share this with you so that you don't repeat this again and and I know it didn't come from a bad place but it came from an assumption and we shouldn't make assumptions 
and I and I kind of left it at that because at that point I was just exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to model, you know, that respect and behavior in front of my child. You know, there's always this picture of this patient family center care. I mean, that's the angry patient who's going to come and yell at you and chastise you. And, and I wanted to show my daughter that no matter what, you always speak to people with respect and dignity. However, that people shouldn't make assumptions based on the way you look. Well, and it also sounds too like as part of that process that as the patient and the patient's family, that you have to stand up for um, how you want to be treated and the type of communication that you feel is appropriate and um, challenging those assumptions yeah. that other that the healthcare team may have right. about who you are or where you're from or whether you speak English or not. Right, yeah. right. And I know I've actually, it's interesting because sometimes when we were in the hospital, there'd be families who were um, Muslims from other countries. And there'd be certain protocols that they'd ask for that the staff didn't really understand. And I almost became that kind of go-to person. Well, what does that mean when they put a sign on the door that says, if, you know, if you're a man, please knock before you enter? And I said, the reason they put that is because they need to know when they can take their headscarf on or off the hijab. So little things like, you know, these cultural nuances, you know, I almost became kind of the person on the floor whenever <laughs> we'd be impatient for them to ask um, about. And, and I was happy to serve in that role, but I think as a system, we have to build those type of people in place that understand some of those cultural nuances and really be able to share that with staff and create training around um, how to overcome some of those barriers that, um, or perceived barriers, I should say. Especially because I'm sure that every healthcare center, depending on its location, they're going to have different kinds of patient populations, mm -hmm. and the cultural sensitivities will need to depend on where the location is and who the patient exactly. population is. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, in this discussion, I've really, it's been really enlightening, and I think that our listeners will agree that um, there are so many things that go into patient and family-centered care, and, and what does that engagement look like? I mean, we've talked about communication, we've talked about cultural sensitivity and, and embracing diversity, and, and we've talked about special populations from pediatrics to, uh, you know, adults and, and everything um, along, the, along the lines, but... Um, what is it that we as clinical pharmacists can do? If, if there are a couple things that we should be doing that, that can really improve the patient and, and family experience so that it is truly team-based care with, with the family and, and patient at the center of it, what are, what are a couple key things that we can do to, to improve how we integrate into the healthcare system? I think clinical pharmacists have the opportunity to really have the recognition that you are part of the care team. I think that's something that is not necessarily um, fostered at a lot of different uh, institutions or healthcare systems. So that, I think, is number one, mm -hmm. recognition that the clinical pharmacist's role on the care team is critical, and they must be part of the team to share their voice and experience. I think also not waiting to be asked your opinion or waiting to be waiting for someone to provide an opportunity for you to get involved is is important so how can you get involved well 
many places now have uh, bedside rounds. And I think that is a key place that clinical pharmacy can really join in that that effort and and being on that team so that patients and families develop a relationship and we also hear the pharmacist's perspective i mean my daughter has been on a myriad of different medications and i can tell you from firsthand experience it's been very important to understand side effects um, i remember when we were running gcsf for her um, you know, the process of what you give before and what you run after is, is critically important. And so I think those types of things are very important. I think, you know, upon discharge, having pharmacy being part of that discharge process and that the patients really understand their medications, know their medications, are able to t act, get their medications. I can tell you many times, especially in the pediatric population, when uh, a pediatric patient is discharged, those meds, especially the pain medications, liquid form, are quite difficult to mm -hmm. locate. And so making sure you have that communication with the family on how can I get these medications when I leave and how can clinical pharmacists perhaps develop relationships with local pharmacists on questions they may have on compounding medications. I mean, our clinical pharmacist was always on the phone with our local pharmacy, giving them the quote-unquote recipe for a lot of my daughter's <laughs> medications. So those types of roles, I think, are important. I think uh, clinical pharmacists being part of hospital-wide committees looking at patient-family engagement or if your institution may have a patient family advisory council, having some first line uh, staff as well as clinical pharmacists on those councils, I think are really important. So we really are putting that pr partnership in practice. And so I think these are just a few examples. There are obviously many. Um, I also will give a shout out to students. You know, look at ways that you're being taught and are there ways to really look at how do we bring patients and families voice into this process? How can we look at our training and, and really engage with the communities we will serve? And bringing that voice uh, into that, I think, also will be very important. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, it sounds fascinating, um, especially, you know, for example, again, as a non-clinician, I had no idea that there were even kind of um, those kind of advisory councils. And um, is that something that is in every hospital um, or is that something that is just starting to to happen in more hospitals? Many hospitals and healthcare systems have patient family advisory councils or have patients and families that sit on, say, quality improvement committees, okay. et cetera. So I think, you know, recognizing that, okay, if there's one, how do I join? How do I become part of that conversation? If there's not, how do I go to the C-suite and say, listen, we would like to be part of this conversation. We would like to join as part of this team. You know, a lot of times... Um, you know, you may be invited and you may not be, but I think being able to speak up and say, I want to be more engaged, mm -hmm. I want to partner with the rest of the team, I think is going to be very, very important. So I just have um, kind of one final question, and thank you so much for sharing all yeah. of your experience with us. But 
my question is just how is your daughter doing now? <laughs> and <laughs> I'm assuming better if you're busy traveling around. Yes, yes she is doing well. Um, she still sees a lot of different uh, physicians and still has to get labs pretty routinely. But overall, she's doing well. Um, she's a seventh grader. <laughs> She's a teenager. <laughs> she loves music and loves her friends and loves to dance and um, is she loves life. And I know that may sound cliche, but she really loves life. And I, I'm sure she's developed such an appreciation for the time that she's not in the clinic or not in the hospital. And so she just wants to grab everything there is out there and, and really relish in it. Um, you know, she obviously still takes medication. She's still on immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. She still um, is, you know, at one point was an oncology patient. And as oncology says, once an oncology patient, unfortunately, always an oncology patient. So obviously there's a lot of things on the radar mm -hmm. that we have to keep a watch for and, and certain things that we're seeing happen as a result of some of the chemotherapy she had. Mm -hmm. um, and she's also still a liver transplant patient. So um, it's complicated, but I think every day that she's not in the hospital is a good day. And so we just take it day by day and appreciate the good moments and, and look forward and hope that we can stay clear of the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that I can continue my advocacy work um, as long as she's doing well. Mm -hmm. However, I'm, I'm very cognizant that things could change very quickly for her. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that I can continue to push the patient family-centered care and patient family engagement imperative to everyone because there will be a moment where I will probably have to say, push stop and mm -hmm. deal with an emergency situation with her and then life completely changes again. So my hope is to get that message out as much as I can with all the good, good days that we have. <laughs> and I also think she feels more empowered to share how she feels. And you know, as a teenager, there's that transition time that they start trying to begin preparing you for in, in, the, in um, her medical journey. So I'm trying to let go. It's <laughs> not very easy. And I hope we can partner with patients and families on that as well, that transition and, and really supporting people like myself who have managed her care at such a young age and, and now are being told, oh, by the way, she needs to know this and this and that to prepare her, you know, for adulthood. And, and that's a interesting crossroads to be at right now but overall thankfully she's doing well she has uh, two sisters and a brother who keep her very busy too <laughs> and we're just very thankful that you know she's she's able to be at school and she's able to be active and and really be a 13 year old yeah that's great well I, and obviously i think that's or at least i hope that's what most parents like they yes. just want their kids to be a normal active kid at the appropriate stage of development exactly so. well hopefully she has lots and lots of good days ahead um again we appreciate so much you sharing your wisdom with our members and our listeners and um i think 
sharing your experience is incredibly valuable because I think often we do not hear from the people who actually experience the system and the challenges um, in that system. Right, and, and thank you for all that you do for, for patients and families so that we really do have uh, patients at the center of the team. And thank you to the clinical pharmacist. You're a very important role on the team, and we look forward to partnering with you guys. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our very first podcast. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and it's by Kevin McLeod and is part of a Creative Commons license. Make sure to rate our podcast on iTunes and subscribe for future episodes. Looking forward to having you tune in again.